Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Good morning. How are you guys? I'm battling in my mind if I should go into this because I'm, I'm a, I geek out too much and it's like, is this fruitful? Is it not? Okay, do it. Okay, here we go. All right. The last song that we sung, I absolutely love that song, okay? So like, hear my heart. We will continue to sing it. How great, how deep the Father's love for us, okay? But I have to correct it. <laughs> there's, there's one line. If I could rewrite it, I would. I'm not condemning Luke. He has done a great job in picking songs like that. There's just one line that we have to understand good theology here, right? So, see, this is the geek out. This is where I was at. I'm over there praying. Lord, do I do this? Do I not do it? So, in the line, it says, How great the pain of searing loss that the father turns his face away. Does the father abandon Christ on the cross? And what's the implications because of that? Let's geek out. So if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew, or not Matthew, uh, Psalm 16. Because here's the argument. Here's one of the arguments. And again, great job, Luke. Could not have asked for a better song. I love that song. I've, I, that is one of the songs, like when I'm like, a grumpy sinner and I feel separated from the Lord, I play that song and I sing it out and I love it, right? But go to, go to Psalm 16, because here's one of the arguments that was happening at the time. Jesus, if you truly were the Messiah, if you really were the Lord's anointed, you're on a cross. They were mocking him to say, if you really are the son of God, what are you doing on a cross? Take yourself off of the cross. They said, you know, they, save yourself, you, you said you're going to save all these people, but you can't even save yourself. The fact that you're on a cross is that God abandoned you to that cross. But is that really what's going on? Even when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, Jesus never asked the Father to forgive anybody of sins, but he says the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. He looked at multiple people on earth and said, your sins are forgiven. So why is he calling out to the Father to forgive them? That word in the Greek is alfiemi, meaning don't stop what they're doing. Don't prohibit, like allow them to continue this because Jesus wasn't abandoned at the cross. Psalm 16 tells us, a little uh, messianic prophecy here, Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to, my soul to Sheol and let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, so if you're not gonna be abandoned at the cross, did he really turn his face away, was he? So go to Psalm 22, and if you remember at the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Jesus in his earthly ministry never called God, God. He always called him my father. I've come to do my father's will. And he knew what the will of the father was, was for him to go to the cross and be the sacrifice, that universal uh, judgment that we will have talked about a little bit, even as we've walked through Revelation. But if you, so why did he quote Psalm 22 from the cross? And that's where the idea is thinking that, oh, God forsaken him, and that's why he's crying out, because he feels forsaken. Think of any really good song, right? Nothing from the 80s, a good song, right? Thank you, there we go. 
If I sing, which we won't do this morning because I don't have the vocal ability for it, but if I sing the beginning line of a song, usually you can think of the rest of the song, right? Like, oh, that's, that's, that's a banger right there. I love that song, right? Jesus is doing that from the cross because he knows all of the Jews and the Pharisees, they know the word of God. And if he just says the first line of a psalm, keep reading the psalm. So go to Psalm 22, Messianic Psalm. There's a whole, much, a whole bunch that's like uh, pointing to Jesus. But verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried out to him. So when Jesus is on the cross, the Father does not turn his face away. If anything, the Father turns to him and is that comfort in the moment of that searing loss of giving his son, but that is out of love that we understand that from John 3, 16. So it's not that the father, oh, there's too much sin there, and we think that, because we understand that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, and we want to think that, well, God can't be around sin. Well, don't carry that theology out too much because we're sinners, and is God not with us? But that's his name, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And even in the payment of our sin on the cross, the Father was there. Why? Because this is his plan. And he has not abandoned him. He has not forsaken him. He has not turned his face away. And if God, here's, here's, the, here's the sermon for you. If God does not turn his face away from Christ who became sin. Not that we put all of the sin of the world on him. He literally became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So if the father doesn't turn his face away when the sin of the world is put on Jesus, does the father turn his face away from us even when we walk in our sin and our rebellion? Does the father abandon us when we walk away? No that the heart of the father is always to, to gather his kids and turn their face to him. We do this even innately in us as parents, right? We're trying to talk to our kids, we got something, hey, hey, what do we say? Look at me. Understand the heart of the father and the love and the grace and the mercy that even in that moment that all sin being punished on Christ, he doesn't turn his face away, then we know we can hold fast to the promise that the Father does not abandon us and he does not turn his face away from us. That even when we walk in rebellion, even when we walk in dissatisfaction of who God is, and yes, we all do that, he is still there with his hands open of mercy and of grace and of love and saying, even in your sin, even in your brokenness, even in your rebellion, I love you more. And the offer is still there to walk with Christ, to pursue him with everything in our life. So Father, we love you. We trust you. And we hold fast to the promise that even us, that if you did not abandon Christ on that cross, you do not abandon us. And so continually cause your face to shine upon us.
realign us to your heart and your will for our lives. And Lord, let us truly understand the redemptive impossibility that we are never alone. And as we go and make disciples and teach and baptize, let us hold fast to that promise that you will always be with us. And the low valleys of our life, through the brokenness and sin that we are so prone to turn to, let us never forget that you are with us and deliver us from that and stand us up on the rock that is you, Jesus Christ. Give us that kind of faith, that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, those are the weird things I geek out on, right? I was just thinking, no, just let it go. We'll just get right into Revelation because I know we're all dying to hear about a third of the population being killed, but... Don't change it, it's a great song. Don't just keep singing it. But look, again, we are, we are finite humanity trying to praise the infinite. Is there gonna be times that we can't perfectly articulate the heart of God in our heart for him? Absolutely, and you know what he says? I love it. Keep it coming. I mean, think of our little kids, like when they were real little and they were just, like when you, when you come home, I love that. When you come home and you got little kids and they're so excited to see you, now I have teenagers they bro me, right? Bra, bra. Like, I am your father. <laughs> I'm about to wreak havoc if you bro me one more time, right? But when they were little and they were just so excited they couldn't even put it into words, that's us and the father. He welcomes it. Okay, off soapbox, here we go. Revelation chapter nine. If you have your Bibles, open up. We're continuing our study from the letter from Patmos, that same God that has not abandoned us, we read about here in Revelation. And again, what can be really difficult as we get into like the weeds and the thick of this, and it can be really hard to, we have to fight against seeing the, these events during the seven-year period of tribulation and trying to look back at God and saying, how can you be such a loving God? and pour out such wrath. And again, we've, we've, we've talked about those universal judgments that have been poured out on all of humanity. First at the ark, Noah's ark and the flood. And then here at the tribulation, but there's still one more time that God has universally poured out his judgment on all humanity. The cross. And so as we walk through this, it's we have to understand those that are gonna be living in and through this and afflicted from the wrath of God, it, it is always out of a rejection of Jesus. And we know First Thessalonians a couple times tells us that we, as the church, are not destined for this. We are not destined for wrath. This is not God's plan for us that we will be redeemed and restored and, and, and taken out of that, we will be caught up, as First Thessalonians tells us, and then his wrath is poured out. And so the question is, well then why do we study this? And that's where we're going with the sermon this morning. Revelation chapter nine, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locust, 
on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but to not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Yeah, think about that when you lay awake at night. Like that'll just mess with you and we'll talk about it. In appearance, the locust were like horses prepared for battle and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold and their faces were like human faces and their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle and they have tails and, and stings like scorpions and, they, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, his name, he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. So if you remember at the very end of chapter eight, that eagle soars over and he says, woe, woe, woe. There's the first woe. Verse 13, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, if you remember that golden altar of incense we talked about last week, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of their horses were like lion's heads. And the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails were like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Ah, oh, so glad we came to church this morning. Two satanic armies killing a third of mankind. It's been a rough week. What do we got for us, Pastor? So first we, we see this being, this fallen star from the bottomless pit. He's given a key. And, and what's, what we have to kind of tread lightly is anytime we're walking through the book of Revelation as good Bible-believing, Bible-studying Christians, is there, there can be the tendency that we want to run straight to identification. We want to see every little thing and look at the world around us and say, oh, I know who that is. You know, and the key, you know, the big one's always like, who's the Antichrist? And we all have our favorites of who we think it is. Usually they hold a political office. <laughs> I think mine's my fifth grade teacher, but 
you know, that was a rough three years, okay? <laughs> but that's not the purpose of scripture, nor is understanding what the mark of the beast is. That's not the purpose of John's writing. And so even here, when we see this star fallen, we understand that it is some being, it is, is mostly satanic in nature, and so is it exactly Satan? Is it Antichrist, or who is it? Well, we know he has the authority of Satan, that God will even allow to use, and he, and he can, because he's God, he will use demonic beings, and even the, what Satan thinks is his program to fight against God, he will use that as a wrath onto the world, you know, because it says that he is given a key. This being would think that he took from God. God is absolutely sovereign, and this is what we see all through the book of Revelation, leading up to the tribulation as we walk through it, and even after it, is the sovereignty of God. That this key wasn't taken from God. He didn't lose his key. You know, he didn't have to do the whole, like, find my iPhone, and who, ah, Abaddon has it again, here he goes, gonna unlock the you know, bottomless pit, the abyss, here we go, I, I wasn't ready for that. No, 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 he's given a key. That God is absolutely in control of all of these events. And again, we have to understand that as God is pouring out his wrath, as we talked about last week, it, at this moment of the tribulation, God is sparing far more than he is smiting, right? Because a third is being affected right now. Now, as we continue in the tribulation and understand the events of it, all of mankind will be afflicted with some of this, but at this point, we see two-thirds spared. We see more of the mercy of God than we see the wrath of God being poured out. And this is his design. He is orchestrating it. These are his events. And even though he is using these demonic beings even we're gonna see Satan and, and the Antichrist himself a little bit later in a couple more chapters that it is all under the sovereign hand of God. That he is orchestrating this in a very clear way and we've kind of said this a few times because God, if he, if he wanted, he could bring all of this calamity at the same time, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, absolutely decimate all of the earth and he would lose none of his character. He would still be just and holy and righteous but he's doing this in an orchestrated manner because what he wants is repentance. And if he doesn't control in the manner in which he rolls this out, then, then that would be taken from them, as we'll see. And so this being is given a key and he would think that he took from God, but in reality he only possesses what God has permitted him to have, and it's a key to the bottomless pits. Some of your translations might say the abyss. You know, and, and again, is, that, is there precedence for that in other parts of the Bible? Do we see that anywhere else? And we do. If you remember, Jesus rolls up on a demon-possessed man. Um, some of the Gospels would say there's actually two, and they're chained up, if you remember, and they're in the caves, and they're... And when they talk to Jesus, they say we're legion, meaning that there's actually many demons. And Jesus is gonna pull the demons out of this man. The crazy part of that, the man wants to go with Jesus. And what does Jesus say at the end of the story? You can't come with me. You just need to go back to your hometown and preach and tell of what I have done for you. 
Can you imagine that? The guy rolling back into town who once was just naked and screaming, living in the catacombs and the tombs, is now just walking through town like a sane, normal person. And so he, before he pulls the demons out of that man, the demons say, do not send us into the pigs, do not send us into the abyss. See, anytime we see any interaction of the demons with Jesus, the demons actually have pretty good theology. It's scary to think about that, but it's true. Because to them, there was a very real, literal place called the abyss. Now, is that a holding chamber of punishment or something for demons? Possibly. Is it Hades where there's uh, you know, a, a place for the undead? And there's a couple thoughts there. But to them, that's a very real place. And they're asking Jesus, do not send us into the abyss, but send us into the pigs. So he does, and all the pigs go down and drown. Okay, where the demons go then? That's for another study. That's Luke 8, right? And so, but to them, there really is a true reality of a place called the abyss. And I mean, again, talking about their good theology, what do they say when they walk up to Jesus every time? What do you want to do with us? Holy One, or the Son of the Most High. They absolutely understood who Jesus was, not in his humanity, but in his divinity. And James tells us that the demons believe that God is one, great theology, but they shudder. And so there's this very real place called this abyss, this bottomless pit, and this being, this Abaddon or Apollyon is a king of that. He's given a key to unlock it, and what comes out? These locusts, kind of reminiscent of the 10 plagues that we think of back in Egypt, clear back in Exodus, except they're not normal, natural locusts. And again, that, that tendency for us to want to go into the identification of everything, we see this description and we want to say, okay, what, what really is that? And we know it's not to be taken literal because even the description says the word like multiple times. They have this like that. They have this like that. So we know there's some kind of symbolism, a little bit of figurative language that is used but what John, and I don't believe God either, wants us is to try to look intellectually to identify it. I think it's a different response that he's wanting from us. And that's a, that's a trap sometimes we can get in, as, especially as we're trying to interpret the word of God is, oh, well these, and uh, some of the things I've heard that what these locusts represent are Apache helicopters, all the way to some other man-made uh, weapon of warfare. I think one thing that we have to guard against is trying to make anything here, we, we can't humanize it. Because to do so, I think would only dilute truly what the wrath of God is. To try to humanize it and say, oh well that's just you know uh, Apache helicopters and that's the best way that John could describe them. Well we also know that they come from a very real place called the abyss or the bottomless pit. And last time I checked, I'm not really a military man, so a couple of you guys could confirm for me that have been in the armed forces. Um, Apache helicopters come from like Fort Bragg, not the bottomless pit, which is again a very real place. And that's what the demons are telling us. And so we see this, and we see this bottomless pit open up, and there's these locusts, and again, nothing natural about these locusts. Um, and, and I'm sorry, ladies, you know, they, they have the hair like women. That's one description they have of these satanic, demonic beings. 
Um, I'm just going to stop right there and not go any further. <laughs> just reading the Word of God, guys. And then they have the teeth-like lines, these breastplates, and, and they have the sting like scorpions. And again, he's writing not so that we would have an intellectual understanding. He's not writing to like, give us clues, then we can look at the world around us and pinpoint it. He's writing so that we would have an emotional response to it. I want to be able to, he's writing, is I want you to be able to read and understand the fullness to the degree that he can write. Again, being a finite human, even overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and writing the words of God, but putting it in a language for us to know and understand, not intellectually, but I believe far more emotionally. I want you to understand what is going on. So you can feel the weight of, of the terror of the wrath of God. The, again, to, to try to humanize it and make it something that we've made, let it be a helicopter or a tank, that's what they believe the horses are, some Bible interpreters, would only dilute that these are two demonic, supernatural armies that are gonna be permitted to bring absolute havoc and destruction and chaos upon the world. And so we see these locusts, they come out and they, uh, nothing about them sounds fun, right? You know, no kid is like, oh, I want one of those little demonic locusts. You know, I don't want a little puppy, I want a demonic locust. Like, nobody's gonna try to capture these and sell them at a pet store. And they are going to torment those who do not have the seal of God for five months. And so we know the 144,000 from chapter seven, those Jewish evangelists are gonna be sealed um, and they will not be tormented because they have the seal of God. And because this chapter doesn't say specifically that they won't torment the 144, it just says he won't torment those with the seal of God, salvation is still possible during this time. That the seal of God of those tribulation saints that have put their faith and their trust in Christ even in this, that they will not be tormented during this five month period of these demonic locusts. Again, God is sparing far more than he's smiting that he's pouring out his wrath on those that have rejected him, not on those that have accepted him. And so even though these tribulation saints are not a part of the church, the wrath of God is still protected, not permitted to be poured out on them. And we'll hear, I think it's in 14, a little bit more of what that seal looks like on their foreheads. But at this point, you know, we know the 144 and anybody else because of their faith and their trust in Christ, these demonic locusts are gonna not torment them, but everybody else on earth. And they're gonna do it for five months. We only have one other place in scripture that that time table is kind of used of five months. And again, we have to, again, a lot of Jewishness about it, you know, the altar of incense. And it's like, why did God pick back up all this Jewish language where for the whole of the New Testament, there really wasn't a whole lot unless we're just trying to point that Jesus is the fulfillment as the Messiah. But it's because the church, again, I believe in a pre-trap, uh, pre-tribulation rapture, trying to combine too many words. So at the beginning of the tribulation, right before the church will be raptured out, and then, so the church is fulfilled, and then God picks up Israel. And another evidence that we have of that is even the calendar. 
See, a Jewish calendar is a little bit different than our calendar that we have. Like we have 365 days and some change, right? And all the months have a couple different days. Then you got that weird February. You know, it's like 28 for a few years, then it's 29. You know, and I can never keep track of that. And they even have the little knuckle thing and different ways you can count it to know, is it 30, is it 31? I'm not smart enough for that. But the Jewish calendar, it makes sense to me. It helps my OCD a little bit. It's 360 days in a year. There's 12 months, there's 30 days to a month. It's perfect, it's nice, it's in ordered. I think the next vote that we have, we should vote in that we go back to a Jewish calendar and skip this whole leap year and February thing. It just makes sense. But take that Jewish calendar of five months, 30 days per month is 150 days. Where else in scripture is 150 days referenced? There's only one other place. Another universal judgment of God being poured out on earth. See, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights when Noah and his family was in the ark, but they stayed on the ark through that wrath of God for 150 days. And so God wants us to see this flood of torment, see this flood of his wrath upon the earth. The difference is where in the first 150, he killed everything. The second 150 that we see, they will seek death, but they won't find it. Think about that tonight when you can't sleep. So does that mean you could strap a bomb to your chest and pull the trigger and it's not gonna go? Hit the detonator? Does that mean you could point a gun at yourself and pull the trigger and you, that they will seek death, but they can't find it, that death will be kept from them? Think of the implications of that. You know, you can't even jump off a high cliff and you're just gonna land looking like Wiley Coyote and you miss the roadrunner again and you get back up and you try to find another way to catch him. Except instead of a roadrunner, you're trying to catch death. That's a weird thought to think about. What's that gonna look like? Does it mean you strap the bomb to your chest, hit the detonator, except it doesn't work? You pull the trigger, except nothing clicks? You jump off the cliff and a big old eagle just grabs you and just lands you down safely. Are they gonna be trying to find ways to die, but then God just again steps in, almost in a sense overriding their free will to keep them from finding death. So I, I read a few commentators just to see if I'm within the lines of uh, you know normal interpretation. And, and you've heard me, even clear back in Matthew, I've, I've said I'm gonna differ with every commentator that I read. And, and, and then there's one more person. I, I have a friend who has probably forgotten more about the book of Revelation than I've ever even learned. Right? He's, he has taught this at the Bible college seminary level all the way down to just, you know, a little Wednesday night Bible study, you know, ain't got nothing going else, let's just talk about Revelation. And so we talk for probably every week, we, I call him, and we walk through the passage of scripture that I'm in, and, and he just downloads, like, like, I geek out, this guy geeks out. Like, my brain hurts, I just hang up, and I gotta lay down on my couch, and just like, this is hurting right now. And we were talking about this concept and it was just, it was really intriguing. And I said, hey, would, would, this be a, would this be within normal thought to think about? So why would God allow that? Why would God allow them not to find death? You know, in one breath, he wants all of those that have not, you know, do not have that seal of God to feel the fullness of that five months of torment that he is not gonna allow them to find death. And I said, do you think possibly, would this be a, an, a normal thought, 
that God is not allowing them to find death because if they do, their condemnation is sure. Could it be a mercy of God that the torment is gonna be so bad that you wanna find death and if you found it, then there would be no chance of repentance and salvation. But could this be a mercy of God that even how bad the torment is, he will not allow you to find death because what is God's purpose in some of this? As he again, he's pouring out his wrath and at least at this point, a third of mankind is affected and a third of the world is affected. But he's sparing again two thirds. Is this still a moment of God's mercy because he wants repentance? That if he would allow them to find death, and to succeed in their efforts, then all they have left is condemnation and eternal damnation. But in God's mercy, he is keeping them from death so that there might be another day for repentance. And then we sat there and chewed on that for a while and that made our brains hurt. But to look and see the hand of God in and through this, where sometimes, again, we don't see the fullness of what he's doing, and that's where we can't look at just at the events of the tribulation and try to interpret God from those. We always have to see that they're in a response or a rejection of Christ. It's like, how could God in be this loving, merciful God and pour out such things on the world? And we always have to see it through, you know, we've talked about the universal judgment in the ark, the universal judgment of tribulation, but we always have to see it through that third universal judgment of the cross. That his mercy, at least at this point in the chronology of the tribulation, there is still opportunity and moment for repentance and for salvation. And so then he moves from these locusts, again, very repetitive, and it's like indicating it's something maybe other than a literal description. But he wants us to have an understanding that it's a time of unprecedented demonic torments. And then he moves from this satanic army to another one, as if one demonic satanic army is not enough. Now we have a second one. And it's these four, and, and Revelation says four angels, but they're bound. So they're probably not good angels because there's nowhere else in scripture, specifically the New Testament, that we hear about bound angels. So most likely these are demonic angels or at least demonic beings that are being called angels or these wicked angels. But again, the focus isn't even on the rider. The focus is on the horses. And we get a description of what they look like and both sides of that horse are bringing destruction. You know, they're spitting sulfur and different things out the front side and then on the back side, their tail is like serpents and they're just stinging and killing people. And then we have this, again, standing army of twice 10,000 times 10,000. So we have this 200 million army. And again, Bible uh, interpreters fall into that trap to think, okay, we see 200 million army, who has that? Is that China? Is that North Korea? Is that Russia? Where is that? And we try to humanize it. And again, John's not writing for us to have this intellectual response so we can perfectly play, you know, the guess who of who everybody is and we can all understand. He's writing for us to have this emotional response that we would feel the terror of his judgment. He wants us to feel the weight of his wrath. And so we have to fight against that idea of who and what and, and trying to humanize it. 
understand, because all of us, not just believers, but I think all of us as humanity, have that in us that we don't like the depravity and the evil that we see around the world, that all of us have a moral law to some degree written on our hearts. Now, some follow that, some break that, but we all have that. I mean, you go to any jungle, and I would probably lean to my uh, missionary friends that literally just got back from places like this, the headhunter doesn't want his head hunted. The thief doesn't want to be stolen from. The murderer probably doesn't want to be killed. You know, so we have this moral law on us that we understand the concept of a right and a wrong. Now you have to culturally give it a little bit of gray area, right? You go to some jungle areas and what's appropriate clothing for them, sadly almost looks about appropriate clothing for us here at the lake, but we'll let that slide. And so there's, there's a little gray area to it, but there is a moral law written on us that only, again, if you were in apologetics the first week, if there's a moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. But we see the depravity and the, and the evil and, and around us and in us, innately in us, we want that to be, all those wrongs, we want that to be righted. And we almost sound like the tribulation saints. Like, Lord, how long are you gonna allow this evil to continue on? And again, if he is the greatest being, then anything that he does is the greatest act. Or at times, we sometimes shake our fist at God and say, hey, you need to hurry this along. Why are you being so patient? Because the same way God was patient with you, he's being patient with others. Because yes, he's enduring the evil of this world because at the same time, people are coming to a saving relationship with him. Even in this tribulation period, he's only gonna pour out at this moment a third. Why? And he's gonna hold back the rest of his wrath because there's still moments of repentance and salvation for those that are even living through this. But the question for all of us, and even those that are gonna be living through this tribulation, Lord, when are you gonna shore up and right all the wrongs? This is that very act that God is doing. That's, that's one of the questions that we have that we're answering as we walk through Revelation. Why doesn't God do anything about all the evil in the world? He is. And it is a mercy of God, it is a grace of God that it hasn't happened yet. But it will. And so he wants us to understand the weight of it far more than we're playing the guess who game so we can figure out what everything represents. Because what do we see at the very end of chapter nine? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. It's repeated twice in verse 20 and verse 21. They did not repent of their worship of demons and idols of gold and silver and all other kinds of things. And they didn't repent of their immoral lifestyle. They still continued in their murder and their theft and their sexual immorality. And, it, and another kind of unique word, it says in their sorcery. In the original Greek, you know where we get what that word sorcery means? It's where we get the word pharmacy from. They did not repent of their drug use. That they weren't, you know, uh, as believers, we're called to walk by the Spirit to be sober-minded. So many people ask me about alcohol. You want my official stance? Here you go. I don't drink. And there's reasons for that personally that have no theological bend to it. I just know my family. I know what I was born into and what there could be some predispositions there, possibly genetically or just in that 
and so I don't. I don't think that there's ever any alcoholic drink that would help me be more effective for the kingdom of God as I'm trying to live out for him. Now, if you mow your grass and then you wanna have a beer afterwards, I could really care less. This is way of description, not prescription. Yes, the Bible says do not drink, and I'm gonna apply any other pharmacy to it as well. But the Bible is very clear that we are called to be sober-minded, that we are not to be controlled by wine, like a drunk person, we are to be controlled by the Spirit. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. And so you can take that, put that in your pipe, and sorcery it up. (laughs) But what we will see in this time, think about that, for five months you're tormented. And in, in what we understand even at this, because this, this marks the halfway point of the tribulation. Everything from 10 to 14 is parenthetical. We talked about that. It means it's not gonna move the chronology forward, right? So we are at the halfway point of the tribulation. All of mankind, after the church is raptured out, the first seven seals remove a fourth of the world's population. And then what we just read in the trumpets, a third of the population is gone, meaning by this point, half of the world's population will be killed. So those who are living through this, most likely will know friends, family, someone connected to them that has died through the events of the tribulation. They, even though surviving, are gonna be tormented for five months. They're gonna wanna seek death but can't even find it. And at the very end of just this part of God's wrath being poured out, they still don't repent. And how frightening is it that they're gonna go back to the very same sins their idolatry, and the very same sins of their lifestyle, the immorality, that they're gonna run right back to the murder, the theft, the drug use, and the sexual immorality, that there would be no repentance. And you see that, and it's like, well, why, why did God even do that in the first place? If they're not gonna repent, then just wipe them out. Because God, in his mercy, wants to provide an opportunity of repentance. And we could look at this and think, well, what does it matter for us as the church if we're not gonna live through this? Why are we even studying Revelation? And going back to my friend that I call every week that's uh, way smarter than me, I've asked him. I said, hey, you've taught this at many different levels. I said, Here's a little moment of transparency. I said, one of my greatest concerns that we've been walking through the book of Revelation, what we call in uh, you know, sermon prepping, how do you land the plane? Anybody have a tough week this week? You know, and we come into the house of God and we fellowship with the body of Christ and we want to hear a good word of encouragement. And what do we read? Fifth angel with his trumpet, demonic locust. The sixth angel with his trumpet, demonic horses. And then I got to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> like, and I work with half of those demonic horses right there, right? That's, that's how we, like, what's the encouragement? How do you encourage the body of Christ even as we study the book of Revelation. And he gave me a couple ideas. I'm only gonna give you one because I need fodder for next week, right? But if you will, turn to 2 Peter. Just a couple pages in. Just get past 1 John and then you'll hit 2 Peter, going back towards the front. 2 Peter chapter three, this is Peter talking about the day of the Lord. And again, this could be uh, communicated in a couple different ways. The day of the Lord is a very specific day that Jesus is gonna return to the earth. 
and other times in scripture, the day of the Lord is, is referencing the whole campaign of events that are gonna happen for the return of Jesus, right? So we as the church, we can say we are excited about you know, Christ returning and, what, and, and if other people are like, oh, well, you don't, you don't believe you're gonna be raptured first? It's like, we, we can reference the same things, but if we get specific, the rapture and then the, the actual day that the Lord returns, those are two different, but the day of the Lord is referencing a whole campaign, kind of like the events of World War II. That is a singular event in history, that war, but also we know that there's many battles and different little uh, instances that make up the whole but you can reference it as a single thing. And so that's what Peter is doing. He's talking about the day of the Lord. And if you look in verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, some scriptures would say destroyed, because he's already talking about how there's, you know, everything's the sun, moon, the stars, the earth, and references it a little bit here, it's gonna be melted. Since all these things, since we know this, all these things are thus to be dissolved or destroyed. Here's the question. What sorts of people ought, I'm gonna put we in there, we to be in lives of holiness and godliness. So we as the church, even though we are not destined for wrath, we are not destined for this seven year period, the question for us as we study this is knowing this, and this is, if this is the will of God, will it come to pass? The answer is yes, or you're a heretic. Okay, very good, just make sure. This is the will of God. He is revealed unto us in his word. We know that his word cannot fail or he would cease to be God. His word cannot fail. Every dot, iota, every, every little portion has to be perfectly fulfilled and we know this, that God has revealed himself through his word, not just his character, but he has revealed his will in his word since we as the followers of Jesus called the body of Christ at this point, we know all these things, it should challenge us. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness means set apart. Not like where we live up on a mountain and away from all the other sinners and we're set apart. That's not what Jesus would have for us. But as we go about our everyday normal lives, living set apart, being kingdom minded, being this kingdom of priests, meaning that we bring people far from God into a right relationship with God, that those around us and our, maybe even in our homes and our families and our workplaces would see our holy lifestyle of being set apart as a testimony of God, his will and his word. So when they look at us and they say, hey, you live a little bit differently, why is that? Be like, well, Revelation 9, demonic locusts, let's talk. Knowing these things, how should our lives be in holiness and then in godliness? So what's the difference there? Godliness is our devotion to God. So what Peter would say is knowing these end time events, knowing what God is going to do and pour out his wrath in the events of this, this should motivate us to lives of holiness and godliness. This should motivate us in devotion to God, knowing that the, the rapture is coming and it's the next sign that we're waiting on, on the end times, and there's no signs attached to it, so we don't have to worry about this army, that army, and earthquakes, and at any point, no signs are attached to it. It's the next event of the end times. 
Knowing this should motivate us for a life of holiness, being set apart, and a life of godliness and our devotion to Jesus. And so again, we've said this a few times and it's always worth repeating, no amount of study of the book of Revelation ever causes us to cease in the last command that Christ gives us to go and make disciples, baptize and teach all that he commanded to observe. So we're always gonna teach obedience to Christ in and through his word. And we hold fast to the promise. And what's the promise? That he is always with us. And even Peter talks about this a little bit. So what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So not only are we waiting on it, we're almost kind of like trying to nudge God in prayer saying, hey, anytime you want to hurry this thing up, we're good with that. Which a lot of times you talk to people and be like, I don't want it to happen yet. Me and my wife have had conversations like that. We want to see our kids grow up and grow old. I want to see my grandkids all in due time. If my kids are in here in due time. I I want that. But at the same time, the fulfillment of my heart is not holding a grandbaby. It's going to be real close. Some of you grandpas are like, you don't even understand what it's like. The fulfillment of my heart is in Christ and Christ alone. Because even in holding a beautiful grandbaby, there's still a part of our hearts that is not fulfilled. And there's nothing on this world that can fulfill that. As C.S. Lewis would say, then it shows that our heart, that we were made for something else. And so we are waiting and we are hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, our promise, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So not only did Christ become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, the promise goes even further that the old, just like our bodies, the old are done and away with and we are new in Christ. Even our, what we inhabit as new creations, he's bringing us new creation to us. And how beautiful it is that he causes us to be new creation before the world. But that's the promise that we're holding on to. 